0: There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, it's the Nerdist Podcast number 496. Caroline's Comedy Club, May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's the most dramatic kind of voice I can do, which is probably stupid because it's a comedy show. I'm doing stand up at Caroline's, May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. You can go to nurse.com slash calendar, or you can go to Caroline's Comedy uh, website in New York. Coming back to New York, May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And then at midnight is going to be on the road at the South Beach Comedy Festival April 4th. So if you go to southbeachcomedyfestival.com I think we added a second show. I think there's an 8 and a 10 o'clock Um, I'm not exactly 100% sure who's going to be on the show, but I've heard the name Doug Benson being thrown around, so hopefully it was in (laughs) relation to this particular show. At Midnight is back this week, we were off last week on a hiatus week, whenever The Daily Show and Colbert take a week off, we take a week off, we don't ask questions, we're just along for the ride. Um, and then next Sunday is the season finale of Walking and Talking Dead, and our guest will be Andrew Lincoln, who's never sat on the couch before on our show, we've only ever gotten him... You know, like, pre-taped segments. So, Andrew Lincoln, Scott Gimple will be our guests uh, for the season finale of Walking and Talking Dead. This episode of the Nerds Podcast was brought to you by Harry's Shave Company. Harry's was started because one of the founders essentially went to the drugstore, the way dudes do, to buy all their shaving implements, and uh, realized that the process sucked, everything was overpriced, and there had to be a better way. So he said, To the internet! And that's what they've created. They've created uh, an amazing service, Harry Shave Company Online. You will get incredibly high quality blades, these really super sweet German made blades that, by the way, they love the blade making process so much they bought the factory, this 93 year old factory in Germany, they just bought it so they could manufacture the blades themselves so they could then. Pass on those blade savings to you So you're not going to spend a lot of money It's going to be a lot less than what you would spend Buying shave kits in a drugstore And uh, it's a great experience It's really cool Uh, You're supporting a good company One of the founders also helped found Warby Parker So uh, it's a good group of guys With quality shave stuff That you're going to get delivered right to your door Go to harrys.com, use the promo code TheNerdist And Harry's will throw in a free 4 pack of blades With your first purchase Um, So that's it If you need to shave for your job, I don't love shaving, and this makes me actually think, oh, I could probably actually shave. I probably could actually shave my face. And Skydart is always saying, why don't you shave your face? And I'm like, because shaving sucks. And she was like, you're going to tell me I'm a woman. You're going to tell me shaving sucks? And I'm like, whoa, 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 hey, let's not get crazy. And she's like, you don't come into my house. You're waking the baby. What? You're waking the baby. Whose baby? Our baby. What baby? The dog. Oh, well if She's we got... She's whining. Okay, you're talking about that? a dog. But, you know, if we did get some high quality shaving implements from Harry's.com, <laughs> we could shave her and make her look like a baby. Huh? <laughs> Wait, to bring it back around. Thank you. It's feeding time. You're like a verbal hacky sack champion. Go feed the baby. I don't, I don't Go shave and feed the baby. <laughs> Words that have never been uttered by anyone. <laughs> Harrys. promo code: thenerdist. This episode of Nerdist Podcast is Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was awesome. I'd never seen him talk like at length, and uh, and again, didn't know what to expect. Never met him before, even though I was in Terminator Three, which I did come up in this podcast. Uh, but but what a what a really cool guy. Jonah and I went out. Matt was out of town. Jonah and I went out to his house. And uh, there's a really awesome Humvee out front that says Terminator on the side. We took pictures. But Arnold was gracious and funny and, and super cool. And um, his movie is out March 28th, uh, which is called Sabotage. And Joe is in it. When Joe was on the podcast before, he talked about it. And said, Arnold's the best. you got to have mine. you got to talk to him. I was like, how are we ever going to get Arnold on? Arnold had been doing a bunch of internet stuff lately. He's been pretty active on Reddit. And so we just reached out and he said yes. Uh, And I'm glad he did. So here we go. The Nerdist Podcast number 496 with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now entering Nerdist.com. Puppy? I do. Yeah, she's what, a little. What kind of puppy? She's kind of a husky golden retriever mix. Uh huh. But she's only about eight weeks old, so Got it. she's She is highly energetic right now. You crating her? You gonna do that? We keep her in a pen at night, I'm
0: and then it there behind it. I can tell yeah, you all just about like it. That. Yeah, 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 just I like can, that. I can tell you all about it. Please. <laughs> this is, this is the, the, the trick. The more you can find them on the beginning, so they don't go all over the house. The pee or the shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. So, so this dog, you know, is, uh, was exactly trained like that. And I um, blocked of this area here, so he just stayed here. And then he had the place where he could go. And uh, and then he eventually got, so he, he didn't do it anymore. Oh, that's that good. It. it just yeah. goes away within a few weeks. Well, that's... It, yeah. it goes away. And the only thing that he does is, I call him uh, Mr. Egypt. Because uh, he builds pyramids <laughs> 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 all over outside, the, in front of the garage. Mystery when solved. When I, I leave, only <laughs> when he hates. <laughs> when I leave, so in order to pay me back, he goes instead of going out there in the field. To take his dump, he does it right, and each one in front of the garage doors in front of my cars. Yeah. this you know,
1: that's kind of his uh, his paying back, kind of. Yeah, I yeah, left you something. I like to think that there is a superhero called Mister Egypt, and it's his only superpower is that he yeah. just shits pyramids. Oh, yeah. That's but like literally actual his only superpower. Yeah. call him Mister Egypt. <laughs> uh, he's
0: building nice pyramid. <laughs> you
1: guys a coffee or anything? Uh, no, I'm okay. Thank you. Ours is still in the mode of uh just blocking. She'll still you still get the excitement pee. So when you come home, she just she just can't help but pee because she's so excited. It's like her body has to unload everything so she can start pouncing around. Yeah,
0: well, my dog's got the Cushing's
1: disease now, which is a pituitary thing where it doesn't know that it's never not hungry or thirsty. So she'll just if we leave water out, she just drinks the whole thing and then just can't hold it. Goes pee right away. Oh Yeah. Not too, uh, not too common. And it's just, she wakes up every two hours hungry. very special. Your she's a, very special. She's an old lady. But Arnold, it's very, it is amazing to be in your house this morning. Especially because you have a full press day, right? You're doing a full press day for Sabotage? Well, we are right now in the middle of the promotion for Sabotage. And, uh, and uh,
0: you know, there's the Los Angeles so promotion. Yesterday we were up in the Bay Area and we did uh, uh, Facebook uh, and... Did q and A Q&A up there. Then we went to San Francisco, and uh, uh, there was a screening, and I was kind of the surprise in the screening, and uh, you know, talk to the audience, introduce the movie, and uh, you know, this, this we then we go. On the end of the week, we're going to go to New York and uh, do a bunch of things there, including RAW and the WWE <laughs> wrestling <laughs> uh, wrestling thing, which uh, of course uh, was, they're great buddies, and I uh, a lot of times do that with them. And so it's a fun thing, you know, to do the movie, but then to go out and to let the world know that the movie is coming out and that it exists, you know, because it's all part of the marketing and publicity and all that.
1: Are you still good with that? I mean, do you like do you ever just sit down all day and not do anything or do you are you just acclimated to I have to go a million miles an hour all the time?
0: Well, I mean, not do anything to me is not fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that when we're six feet under, we can do that. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but uh, while we're above the ground, I think that, uh, I mean, to me, fun is when I do something. I mean, if I read an interesting script or if I go out and play with the animals, you know, we just talked about Gustav, my dog here, um, and then we have a pony uh, that comes into the house, and uh, he starts you know kind of, they start attacking the dog food over there <laughs> yeah, and then pushing it down and eating the, the dog food and uh, uh, then they run around uh, who is faster out there on the lawn and all this stuff and sometimes we have other animals coming over crocodiles and, and uh, tigers and uh, falcons and eagles and uh, all this stuff you know there 's these organizations around that they, that take they care of animals. That um, you know that abandoned or that were mistreated in the past. Now they pick them up and then they bring them back. And in order to keep that uh, going, they need money. Mm -hmm. So for for, you know that you pay a certain amount and then they come over for a party. And people love all this stuff. It's the first time they've, you know, kind of watched the crocodile move around. Yeah. And we had this one crocodile up on the kitchen counter over there. <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, you know and, uh, and he could really, you know, always pissed off because I would take my alligator boots that I wore and I put them in front of his face and, and, and you know he would just open up his, 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 you know, get really that upset that was Jerry exactly yeah. so, so you know so but I mean these are all fun things then I like to go on my tank ride you know and to drive the tank then you go off to a movie set and you do a movie and then you go off again on a speaking tour around the world and you speak about things that you're passionate about and you get paid at the same time and some things like at the universities it's for free but I mean, you know, you get paid, and you can talk about the environmental issues, and you can talk about your your, your fitness crusade, the environmental crusade, and about the good government practice, and about how do we bring Democrats and Republicans together, kind of issues, and uh, you know, how do we get rid of, you know, keep the special interests out of the the, the thing, as, as out of politics as much as possible, and all all this kind of stuff. So, all of this to me is fun to do. But, you know, if you do
1: nothing, I mean, you know, we only have so many years, uh, I will be bored. Yeah, yeah. well, it, you'd probably get. You'd probably just get sick because I feel, I feel like I always get sick when I, when I stop. When I stop and just sit down, my body right. just goes, all right, I'm just going to shut down now. That's right, yeah. That I always feel like I have to keep moving. Yeah, you got to keep now. moving.
0: And, and, you know, life is so exciting. And uh, I think if you don't have an exciting life, then I think you can make it exciting. But I think that the more you do the more you get done. You know, they, they, they give something to, to take care of and make sure that it's getting done, give it to a busy person. Why are you already as a busy person in the rhythm of being really organized and getting things done? I remember that when I was governor and I was working uh, in Sacramento from morning to night, um, I still got a lot of other things done that I had to do for my kids, for my family, for friends and stuff like that. Uh, I still got them done. And so I, I think that the busier you are, the more you, you, yeah. you have a chance to get done. And the more you lay around and just, you know, vegetableize, um, you know, the more the, – the, the, the tougher it gets to get anything done.
1: Yeah. Was it uh, – uh, this is probably an abstract, stupid question, but did you have fun being governor? Was there anything fun – because to me politics feels like – and I'm, this isn't going to be a political conversation, but is – Politics to me feels like, hey, I have some ideas, I want to make some changes, and then you're a part of this big system, and then I assume what happens is you go, oh, it's really not that easy to do what I thought I was going to be able to do, that sort of idealized version of what that seat of power means. Did you experience that, or how did it feel? Yeah, but
0: remember that when something is tough... That does not mean that you should be discouraged. No, of course. Right? So, because I think you must be an idiot to go in there and not to expect that. Right. I mean, it's the same thing if I say, I want to be the world's strongest man. I want to be Mr. Universe, I want to be a powerlifter, I want to be this, I want to be a champion of that. And then I go to the gym and said, oh, shit, I have to work out. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, hello, where have you been? Of course, if you want to be a world champion in bodybuilding or in weightlifting or in powerlifting, whatever, or in gymnastics, you have to work out five hours a day, minimum, right? Well, so course. the same is with Sacramento. When I go up there, I did not. I mean, everyone knows and everyone talks always about it, that... Uh, if it is a, a one-man show, if you're the, the, you know, owning a small company and you're the guy that makes things happen, you call the shots and everything that you want to get done gets done. But as soon as you have a big corporation and you have a board, then all of a sudden you have to talk to the board and you have to convince them. And then when you go into the public sector, then you have to convince now the legislators and you have to convince the environmentalists and you have to convince the business community. and You have to convince the federal government and you have to convince the locals and you have to convince so many different people to buy into your policy. But everyone knows that's the process because you're not dealing with public money. I'm dealing with your tax dollars, and with her tax dollars, and your tax dollars. So I cannot just use it any way I want to. It has to be by committee, the decision making. And of course, when it is by committee, things don't get done the same speed, and a lot of times things fall through the cracks, and don't get done at all, and it's a real struggle. But I knew that when I went up to Sacramento, that I would only be able to do, if I'm lucky to get 50% of the things done that I want to get done. And that's great if you can get 50% of the things done. I mean, <laughs> you say, everyone goes through that. And to me, it was, uh, uh, I always uh, you know, tell people, I said, just imagine how difficult it is to be in public life and to get things done. I mean, imagine a painter, you know, Van Gogh. He says, I, I want to go and paint the Starry Night. And uh, someone said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> do we really need a 42 by 42 canvas? I mean, can we not – I mean the round canvases, and, you know, and then, and then the committee votes that there has to be a round canvas. Does there have and to be say, well, do, do, we, do we have to have a painting about the night, about stars? Can we not – I love – Day paintings. And then everyone is like, I like upbeat day paintings and not night paintings. Let's forget about night paintings. We want to have a day painting. And th- this is the way it goes. And all of a sudden, where will be the starry night? Of course. It, it would never happen, right? So that's exactly the way it is also in politics. It's, it's very difficult. But the, the, when you have a vision, see, when I went in, I had a very clear vision. I said... California, for instance, I would be all about rebuilding California, building more freeways, more lanes, uh, more school buildings, more university buildings, more affordable housing. Fix our levees because most people don't know we have twenty three hundred miles uh, of 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 levees, and they're all old, hundred year old levees. And if there's an earthquake or so, they break, and then our farming will be wiped out overnight. So I wanted to rebuild and modernize those levees, and uh, so we, so. I got, went and got Democrats and Republicans together and make a commitment and bring it to the people uh, through, through an initiative process. And the people voted overwhelmingly uh, for those, uh, you know, for rebuilding California. So to me, that was a great joy. That's what I wanted to do because I felt like infrastructure is so important to a state and to a country, how fast we move people and goods around, that's economic power and all this. So I got that done, but then again, I went back a year later and tried to do something else, two other things, and they didn't get done, you know, because now all of a sudden they say, whoa, well, whoa, well, well, we can't have a republic and have that kind of a victory, and now we gotta put the brakes on it. And Then I tried something else, and then we got that again done. So I mean, so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The key thing is you have a vision and you go after this vision, and you never take no for an answer, which, of course, has been the story of my life. No matter what <laughs> anyone says, I never take no for an answer. And how do you define success? Well, to get things accomplished that you want to get accomplished. But you if know?
1: you do, I mean, like, is it is it, is it is it goal-oriented or is it process-oriented? I mean, is it, do you define success as, well, I went down this path, and I, got, I accomplished some things. I didn't accomplish other things, but it's still successful because I at least... Down well, you know, it's. I
0: mean, you know, everyone feels differently about what it is. I'm. I'm much more. Uh, I'm, I'm. much harder on myself uh, than maybe most people on themselves, right? I mean, I would be on in, uh, in the day of the Mr. Olympia competition. I would be standing in front of the mirror and say how the fuck does this body ever win anything? I mean, look at this. I mean, we <laughs> still need more deltas. They still need more arms and more calves. I mean, this is not perfect. This is awful. And, this is not, and so I was that critical. And I mean, I'm, you know, I won the Mr. Olympia easily that year. So, uh, you know, I, I've always been more critical, and I think that's what makes me also hungry uh, for more and never settle for and just celebrate and say, oh, this was a really great honor. You did a wonderful job. Now let's sit back. And relax. <laughs> and let's celebrate. You know, I never I never look back, I always look forward for the next big thing. And so to me I was, like I said, I was successful. It was very clear when initiatives passed and when the legislators agreed to something that I was successful in those things. And then again, uh, there was other things where they did not agree and I was not successful in convincing them and getting certain things done. The same is with movies. I mean, you know when a movie goes through the roof and you make a lot of and the grocers come in and uh, everyone congratulates you that the movie is successful. And you also know when a movie goes in the toilet. Uh, and I can tell you both because I've, I've had experiences in both so, so
1: uh, you know that's what it is I don't think you can be blind about that what is it uh, what is it or how, where did that come because I have some of I have a, I wouldn't say that I have the same amount that you have but that degree of oh I'm really critical and I'm never fully satisfied and sometimes I wonder if that's a good thing I think it is a good thing
0: I think that uh, if you're easily satisfied you don't get as motivated you know uh, to, to be better or to do better, I think that if you beat up on yourself a little bit, uh, that's good. You know, do do uh, that. You want to do your show better that you want to do the interviews better, that you want to do more research and uh, and be more snappy and more entertaining and to draw the audience in and to build a, a bigger audience and you have to study all the time. You never can be just sitting there and saying, oh, I think everything is going fine. Fine is bullshit. You don't want to have things go fine. <laughs> you want to have things go through the roof. You want to go and shoot for the stars because... Most likely you will not get there, but you get further up sure. when you shoot for the stars than if you shoot for, like, a, a medium, so, you know. <laughs> so so I just think that's good, to, to
1: be hungry and to want more, because that's what drives you in the end. Yeah. And where do you think that came from? Because I know, I mean, I from a pretty early age, you uh, – I can't imagine getting into fitness at 12, 13, 14 years old. I mean, my head just wasn't in remotely in that place. I didn't understand that type of regimented commitment. So what was it about you that made you never give up, go, you know, get up every day when it's uncomfortable and push yourself? Uh, I had no choice.
0: It was not like I had a safety net there, that if things don't work out, mm-hmm. that there was a safety net, then I'm going to be fine and then do something else. So to me, it was like, I don't want to live in Austria. I don't want to be a farmer. I don't want to be a plumber. I don't want to be a carpenter and all the stuff that was there that people did around me. I wanted to go to America to the land of opportunity. So to me, it was just a question about, okay, how do I get there? Well, I, I thought maybe it's through sports, you know, and then I, I, I picked bodybuilding because, uh, you know, I happened to at the right time see this uh, cover of a magazine of, of a guy that was uh, played Hercules in the movies. Reg Park, right? And then it, it was the whole, my whole plan was laid out right in front of me because I saw this 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 magazine in this store in, in Graz in Austria. I picked it up and it was like, you know, how Reg Park became Hercules uh, by winning Mr. Universe. And so this guy won three times Mr. Universe and then he was asked to do this Hercules movies and all of a sudden he was in this international kind of business, the movie business. Mm-hmm. He made money and he took the, his money that he made and built a gymnasium empire in South Africa And all in order he had this wonderful family, beautiful wife and great children. And I said, wow, look at this, like the whole life is laid out here. So I just went after that. I felt like this is my opportunity. I, if I do this, I can get to America. And true enough, after I won the second Mr. Universe title, with the age of 21, I became the, the youngest Mr. Universe ever with the age of 20. Then a year later, I won a second Mr. Universe title. And then I got this invitation from Joe Weider, who was the publisher of the muscle magazines in America and all over the world. The biggest one um, and kind of like the legendary guy that built the bodybuilding sport. And he sent me a, a, a telegram. And this was in 1968. And he said, uh, congratulations, uh, you will find the airline ticket uh, call my agent over there and blah 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 and um, and I got the the ticket to come to America and to train over here and to compete wow. over here, so my thought and my uh vision worked out really well, and so this is but it was not so much that I was disciplined because it 's not really disciplined it's it 's when you have a vision a very clear vision of what you want to look like then you cannot wait to do the next set or the next exercise or the next rep because you know that each rep you do in each set you do and each weight you lift you get closer to turning this vision into reality. And I saw myself getting kind of closer and closer and getting more and more muscular. So you get enthusiastic about that rather than, I got to be disciplined. Oh my God, I have to do another 200 rep sit ups. Oh God, I have to go back to the gym and do another two hours of bench press and chin ups and rowing and deadlifts and shoulder shrugs and all this <laughs> of those kind of things. I never thought that way. So this is why the most common thing people always wrote about me when they watched me in the gym was, that guy smiles all the time. He's not like the other bodybuilders that look like for in the, in the face and got, you know, <laughs> pissed off. I mean, he, he smiles. He's having a good time in the gym because I did. To me, I, was, I couldn't wait to go back to the gym and to lift more because the more you lift, the more reps you do,
1: the faster you get there and become the champion. Are you able to apply that principle to things that maybe you even aren't as passionate about? Are you able to find something kind of juicy and fun about an activity if it's outside something that you actually are really passionate about? Cause I'm sure you're, I'm sure you have to do a lot of things that you don't wouldn't
0: prefer to do. But. Absolutely. I think that the things that you are really passionate about, you can apply those principles and there's some principles that you can apply to all things. Right. But I think that the more you see it clearly, like for instance, I saw very clearly in my last few years uh, of competing in bodybuilding that to become a leading man in movies. Not to become an actor, but to become a leading person, a leading character, a star. Mm-hmm. And uh, now this is as far-fetched as anyone can ever think because it's, it's like a, you know, one of those crazy dreams that a lot of people have, but I was absolutely convinced that I was meant to do that. And maybe it had something to do with that guy, Reg Park, who was the Hercules, that I felt like, well, he could star in Hercules movies, so why could I not become a leading man and do Hercules movies or whatever? I don't know where it really came from, but I was absolutely convinced. And then when I started working in movies, you know, I saw that it actually works. My vision works. Even though in the beginning you can imagine of how many people, you know, discouraged me and said... This is so stupid, Arnold. I mean, you're the world champion in bodybuilding. Why don't you go into food supplements or <laughs> do endorsements, or we can help you with that, or you know, have a health food store. I mean, you know, or, or, or teach, uh, you know, uh, your training methods and write books and stuff. So you know, but uh, you know, being a leading man. I mean, there's no one in the history of America that ever has become a leading man with an accent. It won't happen. Americans love like John Wayne and Kirk Douglas and those kind of guys. That's it. And, and, and especially, I mean, with your body, I mean, look at you. You weigh two hundred and fifty pounds. You're overdeveloped. I mean, you know, the 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 <laughs> the, 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 the idols today is Woody Allen,
1: <laughs> is, is, is,
0: is, is Al Pacino, you know, is are all small Dustin Hoffman. Those are those are people that are starring today in movies. Those are the people that the people idolize. Those are the actors that they want to see on the screen. They're Americans. They're totally Americans. He says, but not guys like you. And plus with a name, like schwatzen you know, Schnitzel or whatever it is. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I can see that already on the poster. Uh, you and, probably and, have a better and, chance uh, being
1: governor of California. Uh, that's so. right. Yeah, exactly.
0: But I mean, so that's, that's uh, everyone said, no, no, no. It can't happen. So having a clear vision and being passionate about it helped me to not listen to that and to just go forward and to do it anyway. And it and it worked out. I mean, within no time, I mean, there was John Milius, who directed Conan, the mm-hmm. barbarian, who said, if we wouldn't have Schwarzenegger, we would have had to build one. Right? <laughs> I mean, so, so all of a sudden, the body became a big plus. Jim Cameron, a few years later, in 1984, said, if we wouldn't have had Schwarzenegger's accent... I mean, he talks actually like a machine, yeah.
1: you know, so, so maybe I,
0: I don't think we could have really solved the idea of a Terminator, you know, because he acts like a machine, he walks like a machine, he, say, he is the Terminator, you know, thank God this guy had an accent like that. So it all became all of a sudden, all those things that, that people said were obstacles actually ended up becoming
1: kind of an asset. Did you realize that that's what was happening or was it just sort of an accident of the fact that you were super focused? I was super focused, like I said, because I had the
0: advantage of having a very clear vision. So the, no, I didn't take no finance. And there was, of course, uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, stumbling blocks along the way. I mean, I, I remember that uh, when Ed Pressman bought, uh, you know, the rights for Conan the Barbarian and for the other Conan, for the whole Conan series in 1977. And then eventually uh, he sold it to Dina de Laurentiis. Uh You know, I, I remember that Dina didn't want me at all. Conan. And it was because of a previous interview that I had with him about Flash Gordon. And he had me come in for Flash Gordon and I idiot, right? Instead of just shutting my mouth, I go in there and I see Dino standing behind his desk. And the desk was so enormous. It was one of this Italian ornate desk that was like 10 feet long and uh, you know 6 feet wide. It was one of those partner desks and stuff like that. uh, Beautiful looking. But Dino was only like I don't know, five, <laughs> five or five, six or something like, it's like that. A habit. So he, only his shoulders and kind of his head <laughs> looked like it stuck out there, almost like he was sitting. He was sitting, and I, I looked at it, and my mouth right? I always mouth goes faster than the, than the brain. So I said, "Oh my God." I said, "Why does a little guy like you need such a
1: big?"?" desk for?
0: And Dino screamed out loud. He looked at me, his eyes opened up big. And he said to me, ah, Schwarzenegger, you have an accent. I cannot use you for Flash of Gordon. Ah. <laughs> you know, so I said, uh, what do you mean accent? I mean, listen to you. <laughs> and uh, so it continued like that, right? And then he says, ah, a meeting is over. Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and he just brushed me off. And then Dino Conti, who was kind of his right hand guy and, uh, you know, and it was, uh, he then escorted us out. And my agent outside the, the door was screaming loud at me. I mean, that whole building must have heard it. You idiot, how could you do this to me? This was exactly one minute and 14 seconds of meeting. <laughs> it was the shortest meeting that we have ever had because you're such an idiot, a big mouth. When are you going to learn how to close your mouth? I told him when we went in into- there, I do the talking; you just be quiet. No, you do I uh, Just let it come out. Diary of the Mouth. He said, and so he was like, uh, he was attacking me viciously outside. So I, I felt terrible, obviously, because he was my chance. I had to maybe, maybe play Flesh Gordon or whatever. Uh, but we never even got to talk about the character, and that was the end of that. And luckily, when John Milius signed on to do Conan, he insisted that I do the movie. And Dina would say, Schwarzenegger, I don't like him. Milius, I don't like him. He's a Nazi. He's a Nazi. And then he says, no, he's not a Nazi. He says, I met him. Why do you say he's a Nazi? He says, I'm a Nazi. And then he says, oh, I cannot work with you. So, so Dina was going crazy. But anyways, so Milius protected me, and and, and and I stayed on the movie, and we did the movie. And, and to his credit, to Dina's credit, uh, three days into the shooting, he came to the set and he watched The Dailies, uh, which is the film that you shoot kind of raw, you know, and and, and, and he came to the set uh, afterwards and he came up the stairs, the, the steps, I remember where we were shooting this kind of violent, uh, hacking everyone apart with the <laughs> swords and with daggers. blood <laughs> was flying everywhere, and, then the mil- and, 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 and Dino del Laurentiis would come up. It was it was January, and I remember he had this coat, this overcoat draped over his shoulders. He never put his sleeves into the overcoat, right? <laughs> he was always draped over, like, a very Italian, right? <laughs> Old-fashioned. <laughs> and then and he just looked up there like this, and he said, toc, 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 up the stairs, and he said, Schwarzenegger. Come here. And I went to him, and he says... You're Conan. Ah. And then he turned around and he walked and he <laughs> down the steps. Step. And Millie said, "Wow, that was the greatest compliment that Dino has ever given anyone." He says, he said that you are actually Conan. Isn't that fantastic, Arnold?" And I'm still kind of shocked. Shocked. And I was looking at, him, "Where did he go? I mean, it just disappeared like like
1: some kind of a movie where someone just vanishes right in front of you." That was totally your moment to go. I can't hear you down there. Like it was your last moment yeah, to really, really take a it shot. Was at wild,
0: it was wild. Yeah. So anyway, everything, everything worked out great, and. Dino and I became very good friends and he became a mentor kind of like he became in the movie world kind of what like Joe Weider was in the bodybuilding and fitness world to me mm-hmm. you know he was kind of a mentor and uh, someone that I learned from about business and marketing and about training and nutrition and all this and Dino was about movies you know because he really gave me an insight and he always had me be part of you know his negotiations and uh, hung out in his office many times and he offered me other movies uh, and, and you know I became very good friends with him and his family with Raffaella and all his children and grandchildren and all this and that's why Raffaella his daughter uh, and his wife uh, you know, Martha Schumacher asked me to do the eulogy then at his funeral right here at the cathedral. Oh. And because he was like kind of a father figure to me and kind of like, you know,
1: uh, someone that I really admired. Is that... Did you always have a business sense or was that... Was that did it, a lot of it come from stuff that he taught you? Well, I think that the instinct
0: um, is very important. I had an instinct always uh, to be entrepreneurial. And I also had... Uh, the will in me always that no matter what it takes, I will work my butt off, which is I think a very important thing that you never look for the easy way out. But just, you know, if you want to accomplish something, you got to recognize the fact that you got to work your ass off. Okay. And and so I remember I was 10 years old and I grew up at this lake in Austria. And there was like three, 4,000 people in the summer that would lie around that lake and would go swimming. And uh, they all will be coming to the front, to this little uh, stand, to get the ice cream. And then I said to myself, look at this line of people that are standing there, and they have to go all the way from the back of the lake around through the bushes there, and up the hill and down, and come to the front to get the ice cream. So I said to the guy, I said, why don't you give me a bucket? And we put this ice cream in, and I try to sell it as quick as I can before it melts. I said, you know, and uh, let me go around. You charge 10 shilling, I would charge 11 and so I would sell that on a Sunday afternoon from twelve o 'clock to around four o'clock. I would sell like one hundred and fifty ice creams right uh, these ice cream bars and um, and uh, I made one hundred and fifty shilling, so that was enough money just to go out and buy a gym outfit or to buy some gym shoes or something like that. And all was, sell, uh, you know, kind of save up money because my parents didn't buy me a bicycle. So there was no money around for any of that. So, you know, we, we were kind of, my father was a police officer. So he was one guy getting a salary, very little salary. <clears throat> my mother raised us. She didn't, she didn't work. So we really had to go out and do our, ourself uh, to work ourselves to save money and to buy those extra things that we wanted. And, uh, uh, so this gave me always enough money. So I was very entrepreneurial. To me, it was like no problem to work my four or five hours on Sunday. I was getting tanned, running around from one person to the next. And the world love couples lying in the bushes, you know, making out and stuff like that. And I was, excuse me, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, do you want some ice cream? I mean, I have ice cream here. And I would hold it up and they said all right <laughs> you know? and, then, and then he would buy the ice cream and then uh, and, you know give me the money and would go and so i would uh, save a lot of money this way so i really saved money for the buying my bicycle saved money then eventually when i was 15 to get protein powder and to buy the skin milk powder and to buy eggs at the farm and to buy honey at the honey farm and stuff like that so i could mix it with the blender my 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 protein drinks which was very important and to, to pay for my that they had to the pay in the gym and so on. So I, I made all this money myself. Wow. Turning so ice always, cream into fitness. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, uh, I mean, so, but it was always entrepreneurial. And so when I came over to America, I remembered that I had $27,000 in 1974 saved up, you know, through exhibitions and seminars that I did. And, you know, in those days, uh, now $27,000 would be 10 times as much, obviously. Uh, but uh, it was... I, I couldn't. I couldn't wait to invest this money. And I invested in some land over in Palmdale because they were supposed to build this supersonic airport over there. And, um, and they still own this land because the guy said, well, they're not going to build the supersonic airport. But, you know, your grandchildren would enjoy this uh, this, <laughs> land, this land. And then I would buy my first apartment building. And I remember that Joe Weeder loaned me $10,000 because I needed $35,000 and then some closing fees and so on. And I had only twenty seven saved up. Uh, and I would buy this apartment building. And I tell you that they, I bought it for $214,000 and then um, I sold it for $360,000. I didn't take the money. Uh, we used the money right away to buy a bigger building and to trade up so you don't have to really pay the taxes right. because you didn't make any money on it. So we traded up to 12 unit, and then to 36 unit, and then to 100 units. And then it, it, you know, all of a sudden I was heavy into the real estate uh, business and uh, you know buying up all those units. Um, And so people really, so the thing was, it was like in the 70s when I was not yet a movie actor or a leading guy or anything like this, but it helped me to make this this money so that I didn't have to take, you know, terrible roles or Mm -hmm. just anything. Because a lot of actors just have to take anything because they have to make ends meet. Well, I took care of that, that my money first came from real estate. And then this way I could just say no and turn parts down and only accept the good parts. Like when I got the the role in Stay Hungry, to work with Jeff Bridges and with Sally Fields, that was one of the three leading people in the movie, that I could accept or when we did the documentary of Pumping Iron or Streets of San Francisco or to play in the villain with Kirk Douglas and, and Margaret so and, and play the handsome stranger, you know, and th- those kind of parts to build myself up to the Conan role and eventually to the Terminator and Predator and all of those kind of things. So I had really strategically worked, but it helped me being financially independent sure. and, uh, and, 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 and being able to, you know, to be a millionaire uh, at the age of 25 already. Oh wow. So that was the, that was really the, the the great thing
1: because of wise investments. So at what point did you say oh, maybe I could do comedy? Like at what point did you decide? And then was that another hurdle in the business? Like what are you talking about? You're in Terminator. How can you be how can you do comedy? Oh yeah, of course.
0: Um you know in in Hollywood uh, they love to put you in a box. Sure. And they say, well, you are the guy that is going to do love stories, and you are the woman that is going to do uh, love stories, and you are the guy that is doing the action movies, and you do the prehistoric movies, and you do the visual effects movies. And they try to put you in those boxes. Uh, but, you know, to me it was very clear that my strength wasn't a beginning when I got in there, my body. You know, I was not known as the great actor or anything like that. So I used the body first. That's what got me into those roles, like playing in, in, in Stay Hungry, the bodybuilding champion that was competing with all the little conflicts in there. And it was a great movie. And that's why I also did the Pumping On. That's why the Streets of San Francisco, where I played a psychopathic kind of bodybuilder, that started killing this girl because she was insulting my body and all this stuff. (laughs) Uh, You know, in The Handsome Strange, it was all about the body until Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer and all this, including the Terminator. But the Terminator role and the Commander role and then Predator and Red Heat and those things gave me a chance to get out of that slowly and to prove that I also can act, and that they can give me uh, other roles besides just relying on the party, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was up to me to prove that, and it worked because I really took it seriously. I took a lot of private acting lessons and then went to acting classes every night from twelve o 'clock uh, from, from eight o 'clock to twelve o 'clock midnight, and uh, I did as much accent removal classes and uh, speech classes, voice classes, English classes, and all those things to really improve and to perfect. As much as possible, as quickly as possible, and so it worked. And I got bigger and bigger roles, and more and more important roles. But Hollywood was happy. It was like the eighties. the The muscle guy is in there, and now there's other muscle guys coming around. The macho the movies are in. You know that all the Terminators and the Commanders and all these movies and Stallone's movies and Van Damme's movies and uh, everyone's movies that that were in this business made money. And it created a whole new genre. So there was no interest at all to change. Because remember, let's not fix what is not broken, right? So when I said I would like to do a comedy, it was like, Arnold, why would you waste that time? You're making huge money. Now look at how you're skyrocketing with with your fees and every movie, you're doubling uh, the salaries that you make. Why would you go and do do a comedy? Well, luckily, I uh, met in Aspen... Ivan Reitman, um, who did Ghostbusters, cool, who just finished course. Ghostbusters. Uh, and and uh, I said to him, I said, I want to do a movie with you. And he said, well, thank you very much. It's very sweet of you to say that. He says, maybe someday we work together. And we were hanging out uh, with him, and uh, there were some other uh, actors there. We were all hanging out together. And then he came to me after three days being up there in Aspen, and he said to me, he says, you know, you have a side... That no one has ever seen on, on a screen. You are very funny, so I I'm interested in actually doing a comedy with you. He says, I'm going to go back when we go back to Los Angeles. I'm going to work on kind of uh, developing some projects. And he did. He came back and immediately started developing five projects. And the one that I liked the best was called The Experiment. Which then ended up becoming twins. So we didn't want to call it an experiment because there was too much, like you know, with a German accent, all this. It was oh
1: yes.
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit too strange, you know, the lab and to make people in the lab and all this kind of mixing the sperm and all this. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's stay away from, the, from that thing. So we, uh, then, it, so then, became know, then the it became the master plan. Oh, twins, right? Okay, twins, exactly. The master plan, twins. And, and uh, so they, be, they became twins, and uh, then I had the, the, the idea of having, you know, someone not only be different but actually physically look totally different. What about Danny DeVito? And Ivan thought it was a brilliant idea. And then we all went after Danny DeVito. And then we all, I remember sitting in the restaurant and signed on a napkin our agreement for the movie. Oh. It was like totally like on a napkin, it was really wonderful. And, uh, and, and uh, we all went to work. And uh, he went to hype it to Universal Studio, the idea with the napkin. He says, I have the agreement from Arnold and from Danny. And I you have mine. I signed right here that I'm going to direct it. And the brilliant thing that we did was when they came back to me and said, How much do you want for the movie? I said, Nothing. And they said, what, what do you mean, nothing? I said, Just give me a back end. I said, Let's us, Danny, Ivan, and me, own 40% of the movie as a package and never take one dollar. And uh, they said, wow, this is really great. If you don't have to pay the the heavy hitters, then we can make the movie for $18 million. Oh, my God. And so they made the movie for $18 million. We owned the back end, uh, you know, 40%. And uh, the movie went through the roof internationally and domestically. And I think we all made more money on that movie than on anything we've ever done. (laughs) Even though I had salaries of $30 million on some movies. But, I mean, this was the biggest payday because Twins. we owned every, you know, a percentage of everything, yeah. of TV rights, of cable rights, of this rights, and that, and merchandising, whatever it was. We owned that money. So we made a, a fortune. And Because I felt that why would someone have to pay when they didn't know for sure that it's going to work out? I w- so I said, I take the risk. We all take the risk. And you as a studio take the risk with your 18 million. So let's all take the risk and let's all go to work. And, uh, you know... He was one of those typical examples that when you're not that money hungry, just do something for the money, that actually things work out really well and sometimes much better because it's your passion for the project and your interest for the project. It creates a whole different relationship with the studio and also with the workers around you because everyone that worked on a movie got more money than we got. So they were happy, and so they could, you know, an actor could come in and say, look, how about, I know you're getting, you know, $300,000 for for four weeks' work. How about giving 150 Schwarzenegger and Daniel to work for free in this movie? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And so it, it really worked, and we got everyone much cheaper. Everyone was in a good mood. The movie turned out, you know, fantastic. So, yes, you're absolutely correct. There were tremendous obstacles to get into comedy, But we eventually found a way to do it. Luckily, we had Ivan Reitman there at the right moment, at the right time and everything. And then I did subsequently other comedies with him. Uh, You know, we did Kindergarten Cop and uh, Oh Baby and and, uh, Oh Junior, it was called, and and, and all those things. And we had a terrific time. And and now we're working on a sequel uh, on triplets where we have Eddie Murphy uh, coming in, and I don't uh, think I knew that. Yeah, so that. so what? Well, that's what I'm telling you. this well, is good news. Uh, this, is a <laughs> this is a cutting edge show. where people get news. I tell people not that. Not just but I really uh, that. Uh, repeating old stories, but we give news here. <laughs> but anyway, so is, it would be with you know with Eddie Murphy, and uh, it it would be like that. You know, the story basically will be that we uh, our mother passes away, and we are reading the wills and everything, and we find out there's a third one. <laughs> and we now have to find the third one, and she never told us, right? And so, so we are now going out and uh, finding the third one, and 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 uh, sure enough, there is, you know, it's Eddie Murphy doing his thing. You know, I don't want to give away the story now, but I mean, it was a really great, great concept they came up with, and again, someone that looks totally different, but that is can be sold as the same age, and uh, uh, so we're going to do that movie after Terminator uh, Five which I'm starting
1: on April 28th. Holy shit. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't expect you to remember this. I was in Terminator Three for like. Of course, I remember. How do you know that? Well, because he told me. Oh,
0: good. Thank you. <laughs> assistant my <laughs> assistant told me, and so I said, "Okay, I can remember that that half hour because a half an hour ago he told me." So I said, "I have a memory good enough for half an hour." So in case you ask me, I can say I remember it. I, remember. Listen, <laughs> I was. I was. My,
1: I was. I was an engineer basically. I had like four lines, but I knew that they wouldn't get cut out because they were very expositional. We don't know what's going on. All the computers are down. You know. Know, like we know, and but I always. What's really interesting about and very special to me about that movie was that that was like a year or two before I quit drinking and got healthy. And so that movie is like a. Um, I always say it's my fat drunk brother Peter Hardwick because I don't want to take responsibility for it. But I'm I'm like forty pounds heavier and pasty and chubby. It just gross. And uh, but then after that, after I saw that movie, that was one of the things that made me go, you know, maybe I'm not living as great as I should be. And that kinda got me on the healthy like exercise and eat well and stuff. So that was a for, to me that movie was very special because because of that. Because I saw in the makeup near the makeup trailer, you had a separate trailer that was just a gym. Right. That's right. I always had that on a set
0: because you know when you work on those movies you sometimes work twelve uh, fifteen hours a day. And so by the time you get home, you, you don't have time anymore to work out. So for me, it was always important that I use my lunch time, that I go to the gym, they, you know, you have one-hour lunch, so I go to the gym, 45 minutes, work really hard, then have 15 minutes for lunch, and then I go to work again. And then when I find in between some other time, uh, then I can go and work out again if it's just 15 minutes or 20 minutes. So sometimes throughout the day, besides my lunch time, my 45-minute workout, I would get like five times 15 minutes off because they have to prep a certain Mm -hmm. shot or so. And then if I didn't have too much makeup or appliances on the face and weird stuff on my body, then I could work out, you know, this four or five times 15 minutes and it would add up again to getting a good workout. So to me, that's how I kept in shape throughout the the, the filming of the movie.
1: And then, I mean, it it seems you still work out every day or do you do five days? I work out every day. Well, it ends up being five days a week. Sure. But
0: the intentions are to work out every day. But sometimes, like, for instance, if I fly to London, you spend so much time, let's say, when you go promote a movie over there, flying and all this stuff, and then way, uh, on the way back, so there's no gym and, a, and an airplane, of course. Yeah. So then that day you don't work out. So as an average, it ends up being five times a day. But I always, uh, whenever I'm at home, every day I go up in the morning at uh, 6 o'clock in the gym, I work out, do my cardiovascular training. Mm-hmm. And then at night before I have dinner at 6 o'clock, I work out again and do my weight training. So I always do that. This way, I'm not too far away from what shape I need to be in for a movie. Sure. So if you like, for instance, in Terminator, the director wants me to be exactly the same as I was in 1984. Jesus. Because he, the, the person, you know, we have, have human flesh, right? And underneath is this metal skeleton. So the human flesh ages just like everyone else does but the skeleton doesn't change. Mm-hmm. So therefore it has to be that big kind of a same body, physically the same thing, even though you maybe have a show a little gray and all of this kind of things that when you see me now, uh, you know, coming back. So, so it, it's very important that now I can step it up with the workout and instead of just 45 minutes of weight training, I do more an hour and a half, gain an extra five, seven pounds of muscle, of, of pure muscle, And get kind of that body back that I had then so that we can switch from the Terminator to the character. To the, the, you know, character that they play now. It's kind of like Terminator protector kind of a character. Uh, And uh, so we can switch back and forth to a... 25-year-old versus a 35-year-old versus a 55-year-old, you know, when it's in the future, mm-hmm. uh, 2029. So all of this, we can then play around with that. But the body always has the same. But the makeup and the face would change and the hair would change. Well, not
1: just even for physical appearance, but – and I work at like three days a week. but I, But I still feel like that I wouldn't be able to keep the schedule that I have without training – to some extent because you just you wouldn't I don't know how else anyone would have energy to you know go 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 if you didn't you know if you didn't keep that part up well i mean i mean uh, you guys have the advantage that
0: you're lean so that gives you right away an edge by having more energy you know if you're overweight that's what drags you down a lot of times so this is why i always tell people i said not only from a visual point of view you want to get rid of your excess weight. And you were very lucky that you looked at yourself and said, i got to go and get rid of this white look and this kind of overweight look. And i got to get my act together. You know, and I saw myself in a movie. I'm going to change this. And you lost the weight. And you leaned, uh, you leaned up. And, and, and you look terrific. Hey! So now you have the energy. But that's the key thing. Now you have the energy. Because I know that when, even with animals and with everyone, as soon as you're overweight, that it's when you slow down, and that's what causes the depression. And you look at yourself and you're depressed because you're not overweight, and all this stuff is kind of a snowballing effect. And you cannot be with the program the same way as someone that is muscular, that is lean, and has his act together and full of energy. And you're absolutely correct when you say that it's great when you get your workout done. You feel more energy, but it's also because of the psychological impact. When I work out in the morning, I feel like I've done something good for myself. Mm-hmm. And I eat well, and then the rest of the day, then it, it comes easier. Then if you don't work out in the whole day, think about, oh, what an idiot I was. Well, how did not I uh, you know, get up early and work out? Are you wimping out now? I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, you, you went, you know, all this kind of stuff. So you beat yourself up again. So I feel much better. I mean, I have done my workout and then get going. And as I said earlier, that the more you do the more time you will end up having to do more. Yeah. Because you're now in that rhythm mm-hmm. of kind of go, 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 and having and, and, and you enjoy it because everything you do is that you enjoy. It. And to me, that's another one of the rules that I always say to people when they say what's the secret, the secret to success is, is you got to enjoy what you're doing. you got to sit down and find out what is it that you're really passionate about and what is it that you want to do because it feels so much better that you follow that that you follow that you, you, your passion rather than just, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to go to college now because my parents told me I have to go to college. But it's is, it is not fun. I mean, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. I always tell kids, find out what do you want to do and take the time and then, and then it's fun to go through life when you do something that you're passionate about. I was always passionate about bodybuilding. I was passionate about show business and making movies. I was very passionate to be a public servant and to go to Sacramento and to battle it out with the legislators up there and with the special interests and the religious leaders and all the different things that you have in front of you that you have to fight all the time. And, and, uh, but I loved it. And I'm passionate now coming back into the movie business and doing movies. Uh, I still love working out. Uh, you know, I love all the things that I'm doing. And so I think that's really
1: helpful because then you're much more enthusiastic about what you do. Well, you're, you, you, you're lucky – in the sense that you knew from a young age what you wanted. And I think most, you could ask most grown-ups now what, you you know, people seem dissatisfied and like, ah, my life sucks. And you go, what do you want? And they go, I don't know. Like most people couldn't even tell you what it is that they want. I know,
0: but imagine, I feel sorry for them. I think that that means that they've not yet spent the time to really think about it. And so many of the young kids, you see them always on the iPhone or on the iPad or on some computer or something, and it doesn't give them the chance to really relax and to think about what is it that they really feel passionate about. See, when I was a kid growing up, we didn't have any of the computers and the emails and the iPads and all these kind of things. Uh, there was just the radio. I didn't, we didn't even have a TV at home. We had nothing, right? Because, like I said, we were poor. We didn't have much money. And um, so I had time to think and to find my passion. And I think that was very,
1: very important. Well, you're – I mean you – and I, I, what I've read about you is that your dad was pretty strict. My dad's was too. And I was always fascinated by the idea that my grandfather was kind of an asshole and my dad somehow decided I'm not going to repeat that pattern and became a really lovely, warm, you know, like, you know, always made sure every time we talked on the phone, I love you, you know, because of, his, because of the relationship with his father. So how do you, you know, how, what, what is it that makes you go, I'm not going to repeat the same things from when I was growing up? Well, I think that uh, generation after generation,
0: things change. Because what you just said about your grandfather, my grandfather was exactly the same way, right? I mean, he was tough. He was tough on his kids. He was drinking. I mean, he eventually died in his 50s with the liver, the deteriorating liver from all the alcohol and stuff like that. But he was a tough guy, you know, and so my father was... Less tough, but still tough when you compare it from sure. my kids today. I mean, he was disciplined. You had to get up at 6 in the morning. You had to do your push-ups and your knee bends and all of this. We had to sit down and do some math problems and solve some math problems right off the top before we were out to have breakfast and all, all of this. But it was all good. And it was not just my dad. My mother, too. I mean, when we came home from school, I remember that uh, she would not let us out of the house until we did our homework. And she, there was like, you know, we, of course, played around, my brother and I, and we were laughing and all this. But she whipped out that the ruler mm-hmm. immediately. <laughs> and it was, not, it was not uncommon at all. It was the most common thing to whack the kids <laughs> or to smack the kids and to, to hit the bottoms and to, to, to punish them physically. Sure. So that was not uncommon. Right. So we were shooting, and we knew it was the real deal. Right. And she would put out the, the, the thing, and, and, and she grabbed my arm. Bang, over there, you know, and, and put it on the table and whack them uh, my, over the fingers. You know, I got the message don't screw around, do your math problems, <laughs> write your reports, practice your spelling, and do all those things because in two hours from now you then are allowed to go out and play with your friends and then later on we can go to the soccer field and play because my father then got off and he was then coaching us in soccer and all this. So they, they both were discipline, uh, disciplinarians, uh, but not kind of beyond for the day standards beyond. So the day, again, it changed. Sure. So the day now, we, I'm in America. I'm not anymore in Austria. It's not anymore post-Second World War where people were kind of uh, you know depressed because they lost the war and they were all kind of screwed up and we were occupied by four nations. And oh, my God. You know, so the guys were all... You know, pissed off. Mm-hmm. They were losers, right? So they, they, they acted totally different because of that, and they were drinking a lot. They acted differently than than I would. You know, I'm here now in the a, in the a, in a place in the land of opportunity. I'm in, in in the greatest country in the world, so it changes right away everything. Sure. And I'm at a play, I came over here. I mean, there was this economic upswing, and everything was booming, and the opportunities were there. And I just saw everywhere I looked uh, here in in America. There were doors of opportunities opening up. So I walked in. So how wonderful is that? So now, you know, when you, 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 I, I'm, I'm happy all the time. I, I'm excited that I'm here in America, that I made the right decision, that my career is going well and I'm doing all the things that I want to do. So now when you have kids, you know, it's a totally different attitude when something goes wrong. You don't have that angry Mean approach, oh, right. you know. There is no. I'm not a drinker, so there's no alcohol involved. So my judgment is, is because of that much sure. better. And I also uh, had a wife who grew up in America and was grew up with parents that were very tolerant. They, they'd let them get away with much more as long as they did their education and, and did their work and all this But they were much more loosely kind of brought up than I was. Mm-hmm. So you mix now that and now watch her the way she deals with the kids. And this, it became kind of a combination of a watered-down trying to be disciplined. Yes, uh, when they left the room and they didn't turn out the lights, I would just unscrew a light bulb. And, uh, <laughs> by, the time, by the time came weekend, you know, there was no lights anymore in a, in, a, in a room, and they would be crying because they were like five years old, and they are ah, I'm in the dark, I'm afraid, in the room, you know. As they well then... Turn off the lights when you leave the room. Well, that's funny, though. That's not not the same as with the – but this is as far as it goes with discipline, right? And then in the shower, I said, don't take any showers longer than five minutes. I said, I never had a shower when I grew up. We always washed ourselves with a washcloth. And I had to carry the water from 200 yards away from a well to the house – my brother and I, even when we were little kids, so we tried to not use much water at all. It was conservation, right? <laughs> then my mother washed herself first, and then with the same water. My dad washed himself, and then with the same water. My brother washed himself, and I was the youngest. I got the last at uh, the last <laughs> turn, but then the, the, the water was black, You're right? At the end of the bucket. But they didn't want to go out and get in, in the winter and go down to that well in the deep snow and get more water. So Jeez. therefore, I washed myself with that same water, right? Yeah. So, but this, I said to my kids, I said, so therefore. Now it's a different age, I understand it, but it's five minutes. You only need five minutes to clean your body and to wash your hair and to wash your body. I said, and from that time, I said, well, they didn't get it. So, of course, I, I... Put in uh, something that after five minutes the hot water ran out. And it
1: was just, uh, just
0: the cold water came down. So they got the mess, and all of a sudden they heard the screams and the shout, of, Ah, who did that? Who did that? You know, and, uh, it was only you know. five minutes of hot so water. I said, Wait, well, five minutes up. I said, so, anyway, because I wanted to teach them how each person can participate in our fight to reduce uh, you know global warming and to reduce the CO2 output and th- this is what you can do you conserve water because to pump water down because we have this sophisticated plumbing system in um, in California where we pump water from the north to the south because in the north of California we we get two-thirds of the water, but we have two-thirds of the population south, so we have to bring water down, but that takes a lot of electrical power, a lot of energy is being used to pump that water, so therefore let's conserve the water, let's conserve the energy, let's conserve wherever we can conserve in a very casual way, not extreme, but in a very casual way, but we all have to participate in order to make it a better world, so that was the kind of thing that I wanted to teach them, so this is where the discipline went, and that way, of course when we went on vacation, I had them do exactly like my father did, we have to do math, first the kids had to do for an hour math before we had breakfast, so they stayed with the program because I'm always a big believer in math and my wife was a good big believer uh, always in English language I would never be the teacher in English, <laughs> right? Uh, because I still haven't managed it uh, well so, so, uh, so my wife took care of the language skills and I took care of the math stuff and those. so there were certain things like that that, we, that we, I was disciplined with my kids, but uh, I, it was never at all as crazy as it was when I grew up
1: well, just what you said, you sort of, you know, it's its fun that you're self-deprecating. You go, I would never be an English teacher. So what, did you always have that? I mean, when you started to realize that, you know, I mean, you, your films are, like, quotable. Like, the Joe Manganiello said he was over here. And you guys were going through the Arnold uh, phrase generator, and you're like, "I don't remember which one that's from." Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. What? Ooh, at what point did you? Were you ever kind of affronted by it and like, "Oh, are they making fun of me?" Or did you immediately go, "Oh, this is cool. They're 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 paying homage. They're recognizing something." Well, I mean, it, it, you know,
0: uh, all of this, uh, the, the most quotable lines in movies. Notice, to me, this is this kind of like I became aware of it as it happened in front of my eyes because I had no idea there was such a thing really and it was not in the, When we did the line I'll be back, I mean, no one on the set ever thought that it would be the most quoted line movie line in the history. No one. As a matter of fact, I argued with Jim Cameron, uh, uh, me idiot, right, arguing with Jim Cameron about uh, it's a stupid line. I say, I would say I will be back he says, no, no, Arnold, uh, you do the acting, let me do the writing, okay? <laughs> I, I, I wrote, I'll be back. And I said, but when I say that, I'll, uh, this L sound sounds kind of a little soft. I think it sounds stronger when I say, I will be back. And he says, No. I wrote the script, and I said, I'll be back. So say it ten times, and we figure out which one we're going to use. He says, don't worry about it. I'm going to make it look studly. So it says, stop always worrying about you know looking soft in the movie or something. <laughs> so there we this argument. I mean, how stupid is that, right? But now, of course, when I look back, I said this was crazy. But at that point in the 80s, I still had difficulty with some of these uh, lines. And, uh, and, 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 you know... I was so lucky that he made me do it and uh, it became the most quotable line. But you never know. I mean, do you know that the the movie Predator was out there for years and years and years and there were certain lines that people screamed out or wanted me to repeat? But when the next generation, the now generation, the young kids saw it, that's when they started all of a sudden – Get to the
1: chopper!
0: (laughs) I said, how did that happen? Where did that come from? And no one, for 20 years, the first 20 years, no one ever talked about that line. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, everyone is screaming, I go to a mall somewhere, get to the chopper! (laughs) Or I give a speech somewhere at the university, they're screaming, I'll get to the chopper! So so that became a a very popular line out of nowhere. So you take a chopper everywhere now? You never know that's yeah. the bottom line when you do a movie you never know which line is going to hit and it's going to be funny And a lot of it has to do with my accent also you know it's it's kind of like <clears throat> you know it's not a tumor <laughs> you know in Kindergarten Cop oh I know yeah it's <laughs> not a tumor so I mean it's like a, it, that line doesn't mean anything how many people say that it's not a tumor but because I said it with a, instead of a T, I said it more with a D. It's not a Duma. <laughs> right? So then now all of a sudden, oh, the, the kids started laughing because I said it wrong, and then uh, everyone started laughing when they heard it. And, uh, you know, so that's, that those, are, those are the kind of things that make it actually fun uh, yeah. and, and laughable.
1: <laughs> well, and then when Carvey and Nealon started doing the Saturday Night Live stuff, did they tell you right away that they were doing that? Or did you see it and go, you know, I want to be a part of that now? I saw it on Saturday Night Live and uh, I
0: loved it. And uh, so, you know, I hooked up with those guys and uh, had them come to the Great American Workout. I remember at the White House when they and have that routine, uh that routine down, and I had brought them to the Arnold's Classic Bodybuilding Championships. And uh, we did that routine, and then they brought me to Saturday Night Live, and we did the routine there together, and uh, they finally found their uncle, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, Arnold, and, uh, you know, I, I was always the guy that gave them hell for, you know, doing things or saying things the wrong way and all this. <laughs> so it was, uh, we were about to actually to do a movie with those characters. The uh, of, of them find, uh, finally finding their uncle and, and, and all that stuff. Um, but, I mean, it, it never, uh, you know, turned up to become a reality. But, I mean, there was the intention. But they were hilarious. I love that. Over the top kind of an accent thing, and then Jay Leno continued it. Continued it actually. You know, he always like uh, whenever he introduced me, he says, "Now we have Arnold Schwarzenegger." Yeah, you know, and all this kind of like it's, if I talk like that, so, so, and I will go out there and call
1: him idiot, and you know, they <laughs> laugh. So, so It was a whole routine. Well, it's been great to see you online. I think we're probably wrapping up. Do you have to? Are you good for time? We're probably at five. Oh, great, perfect. It's been really great to see you. Kind of embrace. The um, online community Like i just It seemed like you You really quickly Developed a passion For Reddit And just I saw you interacting On Reddit Did you Did that passion survive Or did you get to A certain point Where you're like eh, I don't know So much anymore
0: Well I liked online Because it's A lot of pictures But a few words so <laughs> That's exactly The way my movies work Right So I I say okay I, I'm in I'm in You're the soul and, Of uh, the internet I think uh, it's a, But I mean it, You know I think that it is to me it's so wonderful to be able to do things without having to go through the media
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know i don 't mind doing the promotion, doing going through the media and all this, but there's so many things that are so much better if you can go directly to the people <clears throat> like just recently, for instance, we did fundraising you know if, play, if it is me playing Howard. Uh, Kleiner in Gold's Gym and being kind of the instructor yep. and raising money this way. And uh, it's all about, the, you know, raising money for after-school programs. And uh, so I can go directly to the people. Here's a whole new way that we never had 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and raising funds for after-school programs. And uh, people love it. You know, it's a, they, it's a, the key thing is to be entertaining. And I can be myself, which is really the way I am, is I approach in you know, all of the, the this, uh, things that exactly that way, I mean, they're trying to be funny and humorous, and uh, or if we take the tank out and we crush things, and uh, that's very entertaining, <laughs> or if we go and do uh, the, the meal time uh, and, and 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 cook a, a steak, the uh, the uh you know, <laughs> a, a kind of a, a sandwich, the, the monster sandwich that has seventy-eight thousand calories, uh, you know, it's kind of all of this stuff is kind of. Funny because here I am, you know, I'm in this fitness crusade, and I say don't eat calories, and don't eat carbohydrates, and just the protein, blah blah blah, and vitamins and minerals, and then we're producing here this seventy eight thousand calorie
1: <laughs> sandwich. I mean, that's,
0: that's funny. So it's kind of always playing, uh, you know, the good guy, but also the rebel. Sure. And and people enjoy that. And so I, I think that having access directly to the people like that has been really fantastic. Uh,
1: where where did you discover <laughs> like uh, when I was growing up, I had SNL, and I grew up in the '70s and '80s, and so I had like I had comedy easily, readily available. But where do you get what, what comedy were you exposed to in Austria? Like, where did where did that love come from?
0: I have no had, had never had any interest in comedy at all. I mean, it's just that I grew up always, you know. I don't know why, but I grew up with a, with a sense of humor, and so I everything that I did. Uh, and that I saw, I always saw in a serious way, but I also could see it in a funny way. So it's a kind of the serious way, you know, that you're training every day, five hours, and you're competing to have the most perfect body, you know, and the perfect biceps, and the same measurement as the calves and the neck, and everything has to be in proportion this, this, and that. But at the same time, I could step back and say, How stupid. You're standing up there with this little posing trunks oiled up and say, Hey, world, look at me. I'm really muscular. I'm the most muscular man in the world. That's crazy. You know, so, so I could see it in a humorous way. And the same is with the acting, and the same is, you know, when I was governor. And so that's the key thing is that you can step back and look at yourself and actually laugh at yourself. Um, and, and and not be you know sensitive about this stuff, and so I think that uh, that uh, because of that uh, kind of humorous side of me. I was able to then do comedies and to switch over from serious to, to, funny, to funny. And also with those little things we do for social media. I mean, it's like uh, it always kind of like serious. We're raising money. After school programs, absolutely important that we find ways to keep our kids off the streets after three o'clock, between three and six, is the danger zone for kids. And we got to keep them in the school and do homework and tutoring and sports programs. and all this. Very serious subject. But you got to also make uh, fun of the whole thing and be, be able to entertain people while you're raising that money. Sure.
1: Is there anything else that you... What, what, what couple of things do you still want to do? Like, are, are there a ton of things that you still want to do that you haven't done yet that you've put off or decided, like, oh, this is something that I really want to accomplish? Well,
0: first of all, uh, since we're in the middle of uh, promoting uh, in our movie, I think Sabotage, we have to mention in this interview. Of course, Sabotage. We have to mention also my great actors... And Joe Magnello, Josh Holloway and Sam Worthington and Terrence Howard and Olivia Williams and uh, Murray uh, Enus and the, the list goes on and on and on of course and David Ayer, who has really been a jewel of a director who insisted of us doing a lot of research and working with uh, the LAPD and the LA SWAT team and uh, you know learning exactly the way they go and bridge. Uh, you know, doors and the way they comb through buildings and the way they hold the weapon, what the editor is and all of this stuff. And I think that authenticity and that realism is really coming out in a movie. That's what people appreciate the most. And, you know, I want to also thank Bill Block, the producer, for bringing the project to me. Great.
1: Um, I also saw your name on a billboard when I was driving over here for a... Is there a Showtime series with James Cameron? Yeah, James Cameron... um,
0: Uh, we are doing this Showtime series, basically it's an environmental series and it's, uh, you know, we have various different entertainers in there that uh, are doing a one hour piece. I did a piece on fires and wildfires and what effect uh, global warming has had on those and how we are now are burning like 40% more land because of the wildfires than uh, we did 20 years ago and what that means budget-wise, what that means to our forests and uh, to our, you know, kind of capturing the CO2 in all this. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting piece and in about what it means also to the firefighters to have now much more dangerous fires, much quicker fires, and how people are getting killed. Uh, amongst the firefighters because of that so so, and then someone else goes you know to the forest somewhere and uh, there's a piece uh, on that and someone else does a piece about water and so there's a very it's very interesting pieces uh, they're very provocative in many ways and and it's really a great show
1: great yeah. and that comes I think it's in April right? April April 13th or 3rd or something along that Sunday okay excellent Um, this has been an amazing chat this has been so much fun. Well, thank you very I much. I mean, a blast. and uh, We did it over an hour, and it just it totally flew by. We say at the end of the epi- each episode, our kind of way to sign off the show is we say, enjoy your burrito, because it's a way that we tell people to enjoy something as it's happening, as opposed to don't worry about the present. I mean, don't worry about the past or the future. Like, enjoy something as it's happening. Right, right. I feel like it would be a complete missed opportunity to not have you tell people to enjoy their burrito at the end of this episode. Enjoy your burrito. You hear me? I'll be back. <laughs> yes, please come back whenever you want. Okay. You could just be the third you could be the Yeah, Matt we got a buddy Matt, but he's out of town. You could yeah. just be the third on the show from now on. All right, we'll come back Can you actually reason. do that again saying I will be back. I think it's tough. <laughs> 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 hmm. Oh. Yeah, Manganello. Uh, we he was on uh, the podcast last year, and he just adores you. He's like Arnold's the best. You got to get him on the podcast. But he said that time when he when you guys were going through the Arnold soundboard, he said it. He said it was so meta and amazing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> well, because I mean, there's a. We always. Uh, I have a friend of mine, by uh, the name of Dida. Who always asks me? He would say some kind of a no. uh, in a line, and then he says, "What movie does it come from?" You know, and I really have to sometimes think it's like <laughs> from a long time ago. You know, so it's like, uh, but I think he has asked me now often enough that I do I remember most of them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Do you have a particular favorite?
0: No, I mean. Um, I, I I think they are all kind of enjoyable to, to listen to when other people try to imitate my accent, yeah. and uh, they're they're fun and for me fun to re, to repeat. Uh, you know, inevitably every speech that I give somewhere there is you know, uh, and we do a Q and A and I uh, end. Someone in the audience will come up and says, "Can you say those three lines?" And then I of course, you of know. course, I, I mean everywhere you three, go, that must be yeah.
1: a large part of your life. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, yeah but it's a. Uh, I just I kind of miss the those like you know Running Man, Total Recall, the the kind of cheeky but cool big budget action movies. Like they don't they don't really do them anymore. They're not as everything's real gritty now. Like there aren't there's something that's been lost and like there's not as fun anymore.
0: Well, I'm I'm sure that you will see it again. I mean, you know, everything comes back. Everything goes in cycles. Uh, It depends. You know, those directors now uh, are not directing anymore you know, from 30 years ago to yeah. uh, 20 years ago. So it, 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 Hollywood is all about young people, about new ideas. And uh, so they hire new directors and they have a new approach, as you could see with David Ayer. I mean, his whole approach is a much more gritty kind of approach and uh, where we have cameras in our chest and we film each other when we storm the building and stuff like that. I mean, that never has happened before. So it's not just like let's shoot and set up a camera outside of the action and, and film it film the action, but he wants to go inside the action and also give the audience that, and the audience really loves that. So it is, it's a whole different feel, and, and, and then, you know, in, in, in Predator and those movies, it didn't really matter. No one said, okay, this is how you hold the gun, yeah. uh, you know, because I was in the military, and I've done action movies, and always I know how to hold a gun. But in this movie, uh, for instance, in Sabotage, he really wanted us to hold the gun exactly the way uh, a SWAT team will hold a gun, because you have to be much in a different way ready when you go into a room because at any place for under the bed could be a threat, it could be behind some kind of a piece of furniture or a bathroom door can open up, and someone blasts away on you and stuff like that, so you have to be really ready ready mm-hmm. there is no time to go and raise the, the the dead could already get you killed yeah. by just you having to raise the weapon and shoot but in other movies, you know, we just, like, remember Dirty Harry? I mean, the guy's eating a sandwich. <laughs> 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 Takes his magnum, Slowly 357, uh, 44 <laughs> magnum, whatever it was, and just boom. And just kills the guy while he's robbing the place, right? <laughs> so it was, you know, in, so in days' day, the technical advisor would say, yeah, Mr. Eastwood, are you crazy? You can't hold a gun, a magnum that kicks like crazy, that throws you back. You can't hold it with one Hand and, and, and then eat a sandwich and we would knock the sandwich out of your hands <laughs> and, and all that stuff you you got to hold it with two hands and you got to be behind the pillow so you, 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 you protect yourself and all this kind of stuff that's it, you know, to be authentic but what made actually the scene cool was that he was standing out there in the open street <laughs> and from the front not from the side yeah. like no, this yeah, you yeah, to make it yeah, so yeah. smaller but from the front just eating a sandwich cool and, this, and the people really enjoyed that so, so there's a this is a different style. And the yeah. same is also with Commander. You know, we just, with one hand, I just shot with a machine gun. I held it under his arm, and we just, you know, killed, you know, 87 people uh, <laughs> and Commander, and with saw blades throwing them around. You know, <laughs> no one ever checked out then. Says, well, saw blade really cannot when you throw it decapitate somebody uh, who gives a shit right I mean, so, so that, that, was, that, that, that was but in a movie we did right I mean, I mean the saw blade That's was right thrown the and That's the, 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 the head came off and then you know, all this stuff <laughs> it was a funny scene I have to tell you because you're talking about commander so we were doing the movie and we had all this action and we I killed, like, you know, endless amount of people, more than in any other movie and all that stuff, because I wanted to be the Stallone, because he be, you know he killed, like, uh, 81 people, so I had to kill 87 people <laughs> in yeah. my movie and, and all that stuff. So so then I had an idea. I said, well, I have this shootout out there, and I'm and, 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 and hiding in the bushes. Uh, what about if someone would have to go to the bathroom? And now he would come over... To my bush where I'm hiding and then all of a sudden, you know, I, you know, he's pissing on me. So so I, I told the idea <laughs> so so, I, so I, I told the idea that the producer and he says, you ah, Joel Silver, hey, ah, that's a sick fuck, you know, the, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean it's like hey, hey, hey that's why we, you don't make decisions like that, you know, that's why we have a director and all that stuff. You know then I go to the director and he says, uh, well, uh, I'm afraid to do that without the studios, okay. He says, can you talk to the studio, the head of the studio, which was Larry Gordon. Okay. So, you know, I knew Larry Gordon and so I went in and I said, okay, I, I, I think it's such a brilliant <laughs> idea. I got to go in there. So I said, Larry, I have two ideas. <laughs> Here it is. I said, number one, I think that I should be hiding in the bush and they cannot find me and then the, the, the guys are running by but one of them says... Just hold off a little bit. I have to go to the bathroom. And, and, and then he goes to the side, unsips, and he pees, and he pees right in my face, and he sees close-up <laughs> of, of, of the, 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 the pee coming down. But I cannot say a word. I cannot move, because otherwise the guy will hear the, the leaves rattle, right, and, 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 and make noise. So I, said, I just had to take it. And, uh, and, and then he says, and, and, and what's the second idea? Arnold? And I said, the second idea is that I'm going out, And I uh, grab the guy's arm as he aims the gun at me. I grab the arm, I take the machete and cut and hack his arm off at the shoulder. And then the blood is squirting out of the shoulder and out of the arm that I'm holding now. And he's screaming loud, but I don't want anyone to hear it. So I start whacking him with his own (laughs) arm (laughs) over the head, over and over, until he falls over and and dies. I said, isn't that a great idea? And I was, like, smiling across his desk. Isn't that a great idea? Don't you think we should do it? And he said to me, he says... You sick F. I mean, get the hell out of here. He says, <laughs> you're a sick guy. And, 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 and he threw me out of the office. So that was the end of those kind of brilliant ideas.
1: <laughs> that so, is such so, yeah. an amazing... I, I want to see <laughs> both of those. <laughs> and then he's peeing on my face. Wait, we're still talking about the movie, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's in the movie. And then I ripped his arm off. So anyway, cool. so this is, I had some good ideas in my career. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late to put that no, stuff no, in. Exactly. It's never too late. It's good to see you, man. Good to so see, good see you guys. See you. Thanks for yeah. coming Absolutely. by, okay? Thank great, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize.
0: This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life.
1: I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you wanna understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station tonight